Let me set the scene here. Peter is writing this letter about 30 years after the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And the followers of Jesus have been emboldened by the resurrection of Jesus to take the gospel all over the Roman Empire. And so the message of Jesus was met with joy and excitement in the hearts of many because they discovered that they could have a real relationship with God. They discovered that their sins could be forgiven, their guilt could be removed. They, they discovered that they could have hope for the future and they could have you know, purpose in the presence. So the message of Jesus was met by joy and excitement in the hearts of many, but it was also met by hostility in the hearts of actually the majority. And a great deal of the hostility came from Rome and its crazy emperor, Newsom. <laughs> actually... <laughs> Actually, his name was Nero, okay? <laughs> and Nero was so bad that he would make Newsom seem like a Boy Scout. Nero was so bad that he was even disliked by the Roman people themselves. He raised their taxes to help fund his extravagant empire and his building programs. Even the upper class in Rome didn't like him. And there were no recall Nero opportunities in those days. So they were just stuck with him. Now Nero saw the growing move amongst these Christians as a threat to his power. In fact, it, was why, it is widely believed today that it was Nero himself who started what's known as the Great Fires of Rome, that he literally started part of his own city on fire and burned it down so that he could build himself an extravagant palace. But, but this is what he did. He blamed those fires on the Christians, which caused a greater hostility in Rome to come against the Christians. His hatred against Christians was so great that he would literally take them and he would tie them up in his garden, cover them in wax, and light them on fire. And then he would ride through his garden naked on a horse, screaming obscenities at the top of his lungs. That's how crazy this guy was. And Peter saw the storm clouds looming and sensing that the hostility toward Christians in Rome was going to just spread throughout the whole Roman Empire. And so he's writing this letter for that reason to the believers living at that time. Peter here we see identifies himself as an apostle of Jesus, which is a messenger of Jesus Christ. And he's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And he writes this letter, listen, to teach these believers how not to avoid suffering, but how to endure suffering. In fact, I want to read to you from the New Living Translation what he says in 1 Peter 5, verse 12 about his purpose in writing. He says, My purpose in writing is to encourage you and assure you that you are experiencing, or that what you are experiencing is truly part of God's grace for you. So stand firm in his grace. Peter says, hey, everything that you're going through, I'm writing because this is, this is part of God's grace for you. 
It's part of his plan. You see, this letter is much, much more than a hymn of comfort. It's really a call to action. These are marching orders that Peter writes, and maybe that's exactly what suffering people need. Just think about it. Think about what suffering does to you. When you're disappointed, when you're discouraged, when you're hurt, when you are fearful, when you are sick, what's the temptation? The temptation is to turn inward. The temptation is always to become real self-focused and self-possessed and all too self-aware. And Peter seeks to take these suffering people and blow them beyond the walls of their suffering by giving them a vision of something that's greater than what they're going through. Now, what's the relevance to us? Well, we are living right now in a world that is becoming more and more hostile toward Jesus and hostile toward followers of Jesus, and hostile toward the church. In fact, did you notice in many of the media outlets this past week how many of them, that they were blaming or at least associating what happened on Capitol Hill on Wednesday to Christians, to followers, these evangelical Trump supporters? And I want you to note this. I want you to mark my words, that barring a revival, and that's what we're all praying for. We were praying on Wednesday night intensely about that. That barring a a revival, God pouring out his spirit, this hostility toward Jesus and his followers in our country is only going to grow more intense. In fact, that growing hostility might even be the precursor to what brings about a revival. Could be. But here's the truth. Whether or not severe persecution comes, we all know that living in this world as a Jesus follower equals, it means trials, right? It means we're going to go through hardship. That trials are a normal part of the Christian life. In fact, here's a truth. All of you here today are in one of these three categories. You are either right now, you are someone who has just come out of a trial, or you are someone who has personally right now, you are in a trial, or you are someone who is pretty soon, you're going to be in a trial. All of us are in one of those three categories. You've either just come out of one, you're going through one right now, or you're going to be in one pretty soon. And as Peter opens his epistle, he's going to give us some great insight into why we can rejoice in the midst of our suffering. And we know that he's going to do that because of what he says in, says in verse 6. Notice it. He says, and in this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. Now, at first glance, that sounds crazy, doesn't it? And we're sitting here going, are are you saying, I'm going through this trial right now that is so significant that I am brokenhearted and grieving, and you're saying that I should be rejoicing? Actually, Peter says, that we should be greatly rejoicing. And the idea there in that phrase, greatly rejoicing, is that you should be jumping for joy. Can you remember the last time you jumped for joy? I've jumped for joy a few times in my life. Like that time I hit the winning shot in the basketball game. Jumped for joy that time. (laughs) 
what? You don't think that's me? (laughs) I jumped for joy when each one of my kids were born. My grandson was born. I jumped for joy in the news not too long ago that my youngest, my daughter Amanda and her husband Scott, that they were having a baby. It would be our first baby daughter. Jumped for joy. But jumping for joy looks a little bit differently today. In fact, I'll give you an example. I'm going to jump for joy right now, right? You might want to get a picture of this, all right? Okay, here it goes. Are you ready? I'm going to jump for joy. It looks like this now. Yes! (laughs) That's what jumping for joy looks like these days. (laughs) But seriously... In the opening verses of the book, Peter is going to give us seven reasons why we can jump for joy, even in the midst of the trials that we're going through, even though we're living in this hostile world. We're going to look at three of them today and four next week. But I want you to note this. Every single one of these reasons are connected to our identity in Jesus. That Peter does something in these first verses that is really a theme throughout this letter that he is again and again going to remind these people of who they are in Christ. Because you see, when we're suffering, we sometimes forget. Sometimes in the pain of whatever it is that we are going through, sometimes it it just looms so large that we can experience identity amnesia. Where we just forget who we are in Christ. That we can forget that we belong to God. And so Peter is reminding these people who are facing this growing persecution of who they are as children of God. So as we go through this today, we're going to look at, in order to rejoice in suffering, we need to remember three things about our identity in Christ. Number one is that this world is not our home. Notice in verse 1 that Peter refers to these people as the pilgrims of the dispersion. Because when the first persecution started in Israel, the believers were told in the book of Acts that they were dispersed. And they went into all these different areas of the Roman Empire. And I like that word that Peter uses, dispersed, because it's deliberate and intentional. A farmer, he disperses his seed on the farm in a very deliberate and intentional type of way. He plows rows, and that's where he throws his seed. He disperses it. A general disperses his troops in battle in a very deliberate way in order to take back land, to take back territory from the enemy. Investors disperse funds in a very deliberate and intentional way because they're wanting to build something and grow something. And here's what we need to understand. God disperses his people like seeds in neighborhoods in schools, in places of employment, in a very intentional and deliberate way because he's seeking to build something, his kingdom. He's seeking to take back ground that belonged to the enemy. And you see, when God disperses his people, it's an assignment. In fact, we need to look at things in an entirely new way. We need to change. We need to recalibrate our minds in this type of way that when you move into a new house in a new neighborhood, it's an assignment. God's dispersing you there in that place. 
to be a witness and a testimony. He's got a, a plan. When, you, when God disperses you into a, a new school, when you go to a new school, it's, it's an assignment. God has placed you there. When God puts you in a new job, it's an assignment that he's put you in that place. He's dispersed you into a new place to do something in you so that he can do something through you. And I also want you to note that, that Peter refers to these believers as pilgrims. And I love the insight that the author and pastor Warren Wearsby gives about this. He, he writes that a vagabond is someone who has no home. A fugitive is running from home. A stranger is away from home. But a pilgrim is heading home. And, and I, I like that because in the New King James Version, Peter refers to these people as pilgrims. In the NIV, it refers to them as strangers. And that's really a good picture of us. We are away from home, but we are also going home. Think of it in this way. When somebody asks me, hey, Rob, where's your home? I say, well, our home's in Oceanside, real close to the Vista border. And that is partially true. That's where we live. But my real home is in heaven. You know, in in the book of Philippians, Paul, he writes about the Philippians having a dual citizenship, that they are citizens of Philippi, but they are also citizens of heaven. And that is true of every single one of us. We are citizens of the United States of America, but our true citizenship is in heaven. And here's the idea. That means that we need to not get too comfortable here. You know, when my family moved from... Oregon back to California 24 years ago when I became the lead pastor of the church here. The home that we bought in Oceanside wasn't going to be ready for about three weeks. So our friends George and Debbie Bryson graciously opened up their house for us to be able to live in two rooms in their house with Denise and I and the kids. Now, because it was, we knew it was a temporary dwelling place for us, we didn't get too comfortable. We didn't like, you know, unpack all of our bags. I didn't go to Debbie and say, Debbie, you know, I really don't like the color of the rooms of this, you know, that we're in. Can, you know, can we paint them? You know, I didn't say that. I didn't tell George, you know, I, I think you need to put a swimming pool in the backyard because I really, really like to swim. I didn't order, you know, cable and buy a TV so I could watch the games. We didn't do that because we knew that it was only going to be a temporary spot for a few weeks. And you see, when you believe that something is temporary, it affects the way that you approach it. And you can put up with things that you don't like because you know, hey, this is just temporary. And when we're going through trials and suffering, we can rejoice because we know that they are temporary. They're not going to last forever. Although it might feel like they are at times, right? Sometimes it's like, man, it just seems like this is forever. But that trial that you're in, it will come to pass. That one of my favorite phrases in the Old Testament, you see it over and over again, is this one, and it came to pass. And our trials, they do, they come to pass. And one day the trial of living in this world is going to come to pass because one day King Jesus is going to come back to this earth and set up a perfect kingdom where everything is right and everything is perfect and everything is true. 
a kingdom in which it will have no ends. And so I can recognize, hey, this world right now, it's not my home. So in order to rejoice in suffering, we need to remember this about our identity in Christ, is that this world, number one, is not my home. Number two, we need to remember that we belong to God. Notice again at our text. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Peter says that these people are the elect of God. Some translations put it chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. And I want you to note this about this idea of election. The Bible when it uses the idea of election, it is always used in conjunction with salvation. In other words, the Bible never ever mentions that someone is elected to damnation. No, it's always put in the positive. It's always speaking about believers who have been chosen to be in this relationship with God, that God has chosen you to be his child. And this is such an amazing concept that just magnifies the greatness of God, the all-knowingness of God, that God placed his love on you before the foundations of the world were even set into place. Isn't that amazing to think about? That God chose you to be a part of his plan. That he elected to save you, to bring you into relationship with him. But, you know, I think too often when we think of God's foreknowledge, we just think of it as it relates to our salvation. But listen, God's work is progressive. It covers my whole life in being his child. And it culminates with with my glorification in his presence. And this is what, you know, when we talk about foreknowledge, we, we need to understand is that everything that I face In everything, I can say to myself, my Father knows this. In every place that I'm in, I can say, my Father, he knows this location. My Father knows this situation. My Father knows this circumstance that I'm in. My Father knows what's going on with me because all that I am and all that you are and all that we face has been written into his book. That's what's wrapped up in that idea of the foreknowledge of God. But this is where we often get hung up, though. Because we say, well, if God is all-knowing, and he did choose me to be his child, and he loves me, and he's this good, good father that we sing about, why does he allow me to go through difficult things? Why does he allow suffering? to come into my life. And there's a lot of things that we can talk about, but I'll just say this. This is kind of the big idea is he he does that because it's part of his plan to make you the person that he wants you to be. It's part of the plan in the story that he's writing for your life. It's part of his usefulness for you. And you know what? If we're honest... You know, we we forget, we do the exact same thing to our our kids. We do the exact same thing as parents. Think of it this way. When I was teaching each one of my kids how to ride a bike, I had foreknowledge that they were going to fall down. I knew that there would be times when they would fall and they would get hurt. Maybe they'd get a scrape. I knew that, that it would probably be a little bit scary for them. 
but I wanted to teach him how to ride a bike. And they all wanted to learn how to ride a bike. In fact, after Aaron learned to ride a bike, I think I got a little bit smart because I took my daughter Amy down to this middle school by our house that had a dirt track. And I thought, this is great. You know, if she falls over, she'll fall on the dirt or, you know, she'll fall in the grass that's next to the, the, the track there. And so we took her down there on her little bike and got her going. And sure enough, she fell down a couple times. And I remember my wife, you know, after the second or third time that Amy fell down, my wife was like, okay, that's enough, that's enough. Let's go home. And I, and I told her, I said, you can go home. Amy's going to learn to ride a bike. And guess what? She learned to ride a bike. And my kids all enjoy riding bikes. And even though they fell down in learning to ride bikes, none of my kids remember that. What they remember is I taught them how to ride a bike. Let me give you another example. When both of my daughters were approaching that age where I knew that boys would start to get interested in them, I had foreknowledge that boys mean broken hearts. And hurt feelings. In fact, I remember when my youngest, Amanda, was in the seventh grade that there was this little boy that she kind of had a crush on. And this little boy kind of, you know, liked her. But I'll just be honest with you. This boy was, he was a little jerk. Okay. (laughs) And sure enough, he ended up really, really hurting her feelings. And I was really, really mad. I was ticked off, this little guy. But I was the pastor and the school was at our church. So it's like I couldn't do anything, you know. But my son Aaron, who was about 17 at that time and a junior in high school, he got that little boy one day and he told him, he says, if you ever hurt my sister again, I'm going to hurt you really, really bad. Now, when I first heard about that threat, I put on my pastor hat, and I was like, you said what? And then I took my pastor hat off, put my dad hat, and said, awesome, son. (laughs) Give me a hug, you know. That was amazing. But here's the point. Knowing that boys were going to come into my daughter's lives and break their hearts, I could have locked them up and isolated them until they were about 30. I thought about it. But in reality, you know, you can't do that. It's not healthy. And I know that heartbreak is a part of life. And it becomes a part of their story. And it becomes a part of their testimony. And it becomes a part of how God is going to use them. Now, I can warn them of things that I see might happen. But then we just have to sit back and wait and watch and see how things play out and be there in our kid's life to comfort them in the aftermath. And in the same way, God could choose to take you to heaven the minute that you get saved. He could do that. But God has chosen to use people to reach people in this world. And so he realizes In order to reach people, you're going to have to be able to relate to people. He could isolate you and shield you from all the effects of this broken world that is plagued by sin and sinners who live in this world. And because they sin, they hurt each other. But that would hinder your effectiveness. And so God allows us to suffer and experience difficulty 
and the effects of sin, and it makes us relatable, and it makes us useful. As Paul will say in, I think it's 2 Corinthians, that God allows us to go through things so that we can comfort others with the comfort that we have received from God. I was talking this past week to a brother in our fellowship whose wife passed away a little over a year ago from cancer. She was in her mid-50s. And I told him, I said to him, I shared with him that, that this was now a part of his story. That this was a part of his assignment that God was going to use. And that God was going to be able to give him the opportunity to minister to other widowers and widows in a way like I never could. And that his kids were going to have the opportunity to minister to other kids who have lost a mom or a dad in a way like none of our youth pastors can. That that was now a part of their story. It was a part of their, their, their assignment. You see, it really boils down to this. How do you see God? If we only see God as the author of our story, you'll become disillusioned. You'll look at the difficulties and only ask questions like, why? Why did this happen? You'll find yourself saying, hey, that's just unfair. That's the way a lot of people are are looking back at 2020. They're just asking why. I know a lot of Christians right now that are just disillusioned and some are even stumbling in their faith because they only see God as the author of the story and they feel like the story he's writing right now, it just doesn't make any sense. It stinks to them. But listen, we need to also see God not just as the author of the story, but as the hero of the story who allows these difficult things to happen in our lives for a reason and a purpose, and that reason and purpose go along with his glorious plan. His plan for his kingdom that he's invited us to be a part of and to play a role in as his workmanship. Now here's what's interesting about these people that Peter's writing to, who the book of Acts tells us that they were dispersed Because of the persecution. In Acts chapter 8 verse 4 it tells us that that as they were dispersed. That they went everywhere preaching the gospel. And so the gospel, the message of Jesus Christ spread all throughout the Roman Empire. And it says this about them in the book of Acts. That these people, they literally turned the world upside down. You see that's the transforming power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So that in their lives, what the devil meant for evil in order to destroy the work of Christ, God turned it for good. And the gospel spread radically. So God in his foreknowledge allowed that trial to take place so that he could do a greater work in them and then do a greater work through them. And that brings us to the third thing that we want to consider about our identity. If we are going to greatly rejoice in our trials, we need to, number three, remember that we have been given the Holy Spirit. Remember when Jesus was leaving, he said to his disciples, I'm leaving, but I'm not going to leave you orphans. I'm not going to leave you alone. I'm going to send my Spirit, the Helper, 
to come alongside of you and to help you. And here Peter it gives us some insight into the work that the Holy Spirit is doing in our lives. I want you to notice, I'm going to read again verse 2 from the ESV version. It'll be on the screen how he describes the work of the Spirit. He says, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit, that's the Holy Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ. Part of the work of the Holy Spirit is to do this work of sanctification in us. The word sanctification means to be set apart. So in the special assignment that God has elected you for, that he's assigned you to, that he's dispersed you into, the Holy Spirit right now is working in your life to set you apart, to walk in obedience to that assignment. To walk in obedience to God's special and unique plan for your life. Now, you can either respond to that by leaning into that and trusting God that he knows what he's doing. That he's not just the author of your story, but he's also the hero of your story and that he's going to show up. It's like the song you know, that we learned today, Evidence. You can look back on the evidence and see in the previous trial, well, God didn't abandon me. When I was in the midst of that difficult time, he showed up. And because I know he showed up last time, I can trust that he's going to show up this time because he's not just the author of my story, but he's the hero of my story. And I think a great example of this we see in the life of Joseph. Joseph was a dude that endured hardship, great hardship, but he never ever lost his faith in God. At 17, his brothers sell him into slavery to a group of people called the Midianites. And it's interesting, is Joseph, when that happens, he could have said, God, why did you let this happen? God, why have you abandoned me? My story, it stinks. But he didn't do that. He trusted God. He trusted that God was faithful. So the Midianites, they take him to Egypt and they sell him into slavery there. And a guy by the name of Potiphar ends up buying Joseph. Potiphar is the captain of the palace guard. So although Joseph is a slave, he's got a pretty good position working for this guy Potiphar. And Potiphar sees that Joseph has a great attitude, that he's a good worker, that he's trustworthy. And so Potiphar, over time, ends up taking Joseph and makes him his top servant over all of the others. So Joseph, he's a slave, but God's blessing him. But Joseph was also a handsome young man. And Potiphar's wife took a liking to him. She repeatedly tries to seduce him. Now, Joseph, he could have rationalized. Well, God's abandoned me. I'm out here, I'm in Egypt all by myself. I mean, who's going to know if I give in to this? But he doesn't do that. In fact, he says to her, I cannot commit this sin against God. Now, don't miss this. Here's Joseph, far away from home, far away from friends, far away from family, far away from his church, and yet he is practicing the presence of God. I know God's with me. I can't do this. Well, Potiphar's wife, she doesn't like being rejected. So she accuses Joseph of trying to sexually assault her. Now, Potiphar doesn't believe this. 
he knows his wife, but in order to appease her, he has Joseph thrown in prison and he will spend several years in prison. And once again, Joseph could have said, God, why? This isn't fair. I was trying to serve you. Forget it. I'm done. He could have said that, but he doesn't. He trusted God. He leans into his imprisonment. He becomes a model prisoner, so much so that they end up giving him responsibilities over the other prisoners there in the prison. And after years and a series of events, Joseph, who has been gifted by God to interpret dreams, Joseph gets called to come before Pharaoh. Because Pharaoh had a dream and no one can interpret it. And so God gives Joseph this interpretation of the dream. And the interpretation was basically this, that Joseph tells him that Egypt is going to experience seven years of plenty, seven years of abundance. And those seven years of abundance are going to be followed by seven years of famine. And then he gives this advice. He says, I think that this is what you should do. During the seven years of plenty, you should store up. And if you store up when the seven years of famine hit, you'll not only make it through, but you're going to be able to help others. And Pharaoh so likes this idea that he makes Joseph, puts him in charge of the whole entire project. And so Joseph is now like the second in command over all of Egypt. Now here's the thing. Joseph didn't know that that was going to happen when his brothers sold him into slavery. He didn't know, well, I know this is where this is headed. He he didn't know that, but God did. God, in his foreknowledge, was orchestrating an amazing story. And during those seven years of famine, now everyone is coming to Egypt to buy grain, and Egypt is helping everyone, but they're getting richer in the process. And lo and behold, one day Joseph's brothers come to buy grain, and they've got to come before him. And they're brought before Joseph, and they don't recognize him because he's dressed up in all of his Egyptian guard. But when he finally reveals himself to them, they're like freaking out. Thirteen years have gone by, and they're thinking he's going to get revenge. He's going to either imprison us or he's going to kill us. But that's not what Joseph does. Joseph literally, he forgives them, and he says this to them. Genesis 50, verse 20 He says, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people alive. You see, Joseph understood in that moment that he had been set apart by the Lord to walk in obedience to God's plan, a plan that was going to help many, many people be saved. He didn't know what that plan was, but he believed that God was faithful. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, well, that's great for Joseph, but I'm not that spiritual. Man, I sin, I give in to my flesh, I doubt, I lose my faith. And you know what? So do I. But that's why what Peter says next is so incredibly awesome. And again, I want to read this to you from the ESV. He says, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Here is who else you are. You are are a person who has been covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. 
This idea of the sprinkling of the blood is an Old Testament picture that was connected to what would happen in the tabernacle and the temple on the day of atonement every year where the high priest would take the sacrificial lamb and he would you know sacrifice it slit its blood bring the blood from that sacrifice from that lamb into the holy of holies into the shekinah glory of god and he would sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat and it would mean that the sins of the people of israel were covered for a whole nother year well the bible teaches us that jesus is the final sacrificial lamb. And his blood doesn't just cover our sin, it cleanses us of our sin. And the Bible teaches us that there is a perpetual flow of blood available to us. The blood that spilled from our Savior's veins at Calvary that can cleanse us constantly of our sin and our shame. Listen, when you sin, you don't need, need to get saved again. You know, sometimes I see, you know, people responding to altar calls, you know, four or five times, raising their hand or coming forward, and, and I know they're saved. They don't need to get saved again. They just need to learn how to apply the blood. How do you do that? Well, the Apostle John, he put it this way. First John chapter 1, verse 9, he says, If we sin, or excuse me, if we confess our sin, that he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What do you do when you sin? You confess it. You know what that word confess means? It means to own it. It means to say the same as. It means that I'm not going to rationalize my sin. I'm not going to make excuses for it. I'm going to own it. I'm going to say, God, that was wrong. That was sin. And I'm turning away from that. And I'm turning to you. And John says, if we confess our sin, he is faithful to forgive us. That the blood of Jesus Christ covers all of our sin. Our sins are forgiven and forgotten. And what wonderful hope that is, that no matter how deep my struggle might be, how great my failure is, no matter how strong my weakness, that there is ongoing forgiveness available to me through the blood of Jesus Christ. That when I sin, I don't need to run from God's presence, but I can run into God's presence because my life is covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. And as I confess my sin, as I turn from it, that he forgives me and he restores me and his grace and and peace are multiplied to me. So precious friends, Whether you are in a trial presently or you just got out of one or you are soon going to be going into one, we can greatly rejoice today because we know, number one, that this world is not our home. It's temporary. We can greatly rejoice because God is a good, good Father who is actively working in our lives, who has given us His Holy Spirit, who is committed to set us apart for God's plan and God's purpose, who every day is seeking to lead us into obedience. But when we fail, we can rejoice because the blood of Jesus Christ still cleanses our sin. We can rejoice because what Paul the Apostle said in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6 is true, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Can I get an amen? Let's pray.
Lord, we thank you so much that you are that good, good Father. That you love us. That you're committed to us. That even when we find ourselves in difficulty, that Lord, we know you, you haven't forsaken us and you never will. And Lord, as we wrap up our time today by singing this song, that we sing so often, God, I pray today that these wouldn't just be words on a screen, but it would be the anthem of our hearts. That all my life, you, Lord, have been faithful. That all my life, you have been so, so good. And so with every breath that I am able, God, I want to sing today and tomorrow and next week and all through this year of the goodness of God. And Lord, may your goodness be running after us this year. Now, so with our head bowed and our eyes closed, maybe you're here today and you're wondering, well, how do I know if I'm chosen? How do I know that if this pertains to me? Well, in probably the most famous Bible verse, John 3.16, we're told this, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. So if you're wondering, hey, am I chosen? Believe. Believe what Jesus did for you. Today, right in your seat, just put your faith in him. Admit, Jesus, I'm, I'm a sinner and I need a savior. And ask him to forgive you today, to cleanse you, to give him that, give you that freedom from your sin and guilt and shame that you so desire that haunts you right now. And as you just quietly in your own heart, you do that right now, Jesus is going to meet you. And God in this moment becomes not just your creator, but your father. And you're going to begin to see his plan for your life unfold. We love you, Lord. We give you our lives. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together, church.